Hey, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we look at music inside and out. My name's Noah, you probably know me as Polyphonic. And I'm Cora, you probably know me better as 12-Tone, and today we're going to talk about the question, should all musicians compose? And this was sort of inspired by a video that Dr. Melissa Dunphy made a couple months ago as of this recording, and thus a couple more months ago by the time you're listening to it. But that was basically making the argument that they should from the perspective of a classical musician. And it's a really good video. I don't disagree with anything she said. I would highly recommend it. What was the video called, Noah? I think you looked this up. Yeah, yeah, I've got it up now. It's called All Musicians Should Compose, a rant about the way we are taught classical music. Yeah, exactly. And I think... Again, great video, completely agree with her from the perspective of classical. Noah and I are coming more at this from the rock side and where I think the conversation is a little different. And so we thought it would be fun to look at. Anyway, do you want to get us started? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think first off, we can kind of frame a little bit of what she was saying in the video about classical is she was saying in classical, a lot of kind of like formal performance and training and stuff is built around people performing basically the same pieces by the same handful of dead old white guys. And there's almost no focus and no room created for even little flourishes or improvisations throughout that. It's all about kind of following stuff as it was written. And she talks about how that frustrated her. And then she went to rock and saw that in a lot of rock circles, there's almost this mentality of you're not a musician if you don't compose. And I think that that's something that's really interesting to me. And you as well have said this coming from the rock side. I think I personally think that there's too much emphasis put on composition in the rock side. Yeah, well, the thing is that it comes down to what we mean by composition, you know, and this is a thing where in her video, Dr. Dunphy is using a very broad definition and she specifies that. And in the context of her argument, I'm totally fine with that. I tend to think if people define the terms that they're using clearly, there's not really a point in arguing about it, right? Yeah. Like it means that for the context of her argument. But when we look at sort of the rock conversation, my experience is that that is often a much more limited sense of what composition is, that it's basically, you know, the notes on the page. And specifically the notes on the page in sort of the lead parts, like legally speaking, in terms of copyright of a song, quote unquote, is the combination of a melody and lyrics. And I think that a lot of rock music, a lot of rock musicians think of that as composition. That's the part of it that is composing everything else. Like an example that I like on this is Eleanor Rigby. Yes. Like if you look it up, Eleanor Rigby is written by Lennon and McCartney, and that's it. But if you listen to Eleanor Rigby, you will notice that there's a bunch of string arrangements going on that are, I would argue, pretty important to the feel of the song. Kind of the whole thing. <laughs> that is what Eleanor Rigby is, much more than like the melody and the lyrics. But that wasn't written by Lennon or McCartney, it was written by George Martin, and he's listed as a producer instead. And so... When we talk about, like, should all musicians compose, I think we first need to figure out what we mean by composing. Classic ghost notes. Before we can talk about this topic, let's go into our esoteric definitions. Love it. Yeah, no, let's let's be a dictionary. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think for the framework of our conversation, at least, I think there's things where, again, I would kind of have a very broad definition of composing as well, where, like, another example, if we're using the copyright things, if you go by the book of copyright law, J Jimi Hendrix, I believe, is not a writer of no. All Along the Watchtower. No. 
But I would consider that clearly a Jimi Hendrix composition, the music of it. So I kind of think of composition as ideating, you know? Yeah. Which is even more vague, but coming up with ideas, and that doesn't necessarily need to mean coming from scratch. It can definitely mean kind of expanding an existing idea, covering, or even even things like improvising on a solo or something like that. In my mind, all of that kind of counts as composition. Do you feel kind of the same? I don't quite. So what you're getting at there for me is sort of the difference between interpretation and recitation. Mm. Like, again, the example I would go to immediately is that John Coltrane did not write My Favorite Things. But if you listen to John Coltrane's My Favorite Things, you are not reminded of the version from The Sound of Music in pretty much any way. So he is, in that case, very clearly interpreting it and making it something that is clearly his own. And he's also, there are some of that is compositional choices. Some of that is sort of, I guess where I would draw the line is composition versus improvisation. And I would view composition as decisions that are made in the abstract prior to the performance to represent sort of the work as a whole as opposed to any individual expression of it. This goes to something that we talk about sometimes in like Ivory Tower Music Academia, this concept of the, I say concept, the the idea of the work concept, which is the idea that a piece of music exists as an abstract work sort of separate from any individual performance, right? So, like... I think we talked about this a little bit in our uh, experimental music episode. That does sound familiar. (laughs) That is very possible. But, yeah, so, like, if you think of Beethoven's Fifth, Beethoven's Fifth is a work, right? You have an idea of what it is. You don't have to compare it to any specific performance of it. Whereas, if you think of a lot of, like, jazz standards, there's a work there. But then, if you're talking about someone's version, that becomes harder to separate from the individual interpretation in a way that, you know, again, and this comes back to like classical versus jazz and back to like what Dr. Dunphy was arguing is that, you know, a lot of classical music, we have this sort of like rigid work that we're trying to adhere to when we perform a piece in a way that we don't necessarily in other genres. So then where would you kind of, and I think this is a place where the conversation often goes when it comes to composition, where would you put the work of pop stars or divas, people like Beyonce, Mariah Carey, you know, people that sing songs written by other people. But then, I mean, it's also tough because in someone like Beyonce has a lot of co-writing credits, so you don't know how much she wrote. But where do you think that that kind of pop or even even countries a lot like this with the kind of Nashville scene and things like that, where do you think those kind of fit into our understandings? Is that not composition? That's interpretation of somebody else's writing? If we set aside songs where someone has like a co-writing credit, right? Like, yes, that is a thing that happens a lot more than rock musicians will give pop musicians credit for. Yes. Like, I remember off the top, I was talking to a friend and I like mentioned, you know, Taylor Swift and had done a song and they were like, yeah, well, you know, if she writes any of her own stuff, it's like Taylor Swift writes her own stuff. Like that's Taylor Swift writes all the time. Like that is just if there's any pop star you're going to say that for Taylor Swift is not one you can don't come for Taylor on this. But like and Beyonce too. Beyonce has done has a lot of writing credits. She writes a lot of her own music. But if you look at people who aren't, you know, listed as writing, who like someone else has written the melody and the lyrics and they're just coming in and singing them, but they're still adding their own voice, right? They're still interpreting. And I think that that's what I would say is that I don't view it as composition, but I also would be very careful to try and strip away some of the prestige we associate with the term composition 
and I think this gets to sort of the broader topic yes. we wanted to talk about, is that like when we talk about a composer, there's this idea that this is the person who made the music. And I don't view that as true. I think a lot of times your experience of the music is much more shaped by the interpreter, which may also be the composer. It may be someone who writes their own music. But, you know, if you look at Frank Sinatra as a classic example, yes. Frank Sinatra basically never wrote any music of his own. But there's a reason we still talk about Frank Sinatra, is he was very good at taking music, putting it in his voice, and then delivering it in a way that made it meaningful to him and to you through him. Well, I think there's these ideas in rock music that a musician is one who can compose, perform, play an instrument. Like in rock, there's all of these things that, and I think I might have said this on here before, I've definitely ranted about this before, where people think... Oh, we've absolutely talked about this before. <laughs> people think that to be a quote-unquote true musician, you need all of these things wrapped up in one, when in reality they are disparate skills and they're related but they're also very different in a lot of ways and being very good at guitar does not mean that you'll be very good at writing songs you know and and I think that's one of the things that happens with a lot of this is kind of like abstracted by the concept of the band right where yeah. a lot of the time in bands it's pretty common for bands to have one or two principal songwriters and the rest are just instrumentalist performers. But bands don't get scrutiny. People don't go... Yeah, no one's mad at Roger Daltrey for not writing the lyrics to the Who songs. Exactly, yeah. That's a great example because uh, Pete Townsend basically did all the songwriting for that band, but nobody's kind of saying, oh, Roger Daltrey isn't a real musician, but people will say, oh, Beyonce isn't a real musician. You know what? I'll say it. Roger Daltrey isn't a real musician. I don't believe that. That's not a stance I'm willing to take, but I'll say it. And that's why <laughs> it's great when Fred Durst took behind Blue Eyes and a real exactly. musician. He, a real musician it. handled, yeah. God, eventually we're going to have to stop talking about that never, cover. But never. It is not this day. <laughs> but yeah, I think there's this kind of like social weight and capital put on auteurship in rock. Yeah. And I think that it does the genre a lot of harm. I would compare it like to film. And I think this, this is a thing where if you look at film... There are just so many skills that go into making a blockbuster film. Like, yes, you know, you, you can have like a small student film that's like made by a couple people, but like if you look at like the big, like major movie studio productions, there are like hundreds of people working on that, and each of them has a skill set, and we don't expect anyone to have all the skill sets. But with rock and with music, there's still a lot of different skill sets, but they tend to be closer together, and yeah. there's fewer of them total. And so we get this idea that one person could do it in a way that we, we, like, you know, we don't have the same person, like, delivering the lines and framing the shots and color grading and I don't know enough about film to give more examples. But, you know, the sorts of things Patrick Willems talks about. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, doing those sorts of things, like, there's so many people who do that and writing the scripts and everything. And there's not this expectation that one person's going to do it all. But... In music, there is that expectation. Again, I think it is because it, especially in like rock, it's closer to being able to do that, right? Like there's a couple instruments and then singing and then sort of recording and editing and 
you can almost imagine one person being, and you can imagine one person being good enough to do all that. There are people who do it, but you know. I think historically what happened was like rock in the 60s, because in the 50s, when rock and roll was first born, most of those musicians were not composing. No. Like most early rock and roll songs were either kind of like blue standards or written by other people or country songs. In its very like kind of first origins, rock wasn't really it wasn't really different than any other music that way. But I think where things started to change was in the early 60s, namely with people like Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan was a huge influence on rock. Yeah. And he kind of created the singer-songwriter thing, even to the point where you look at, like, the early Beatles stuff, and yeah, they do write a few songs, but most of their albums are consisting of pop standards. Their, their, their early stuff, like, that was what it was. And yeah, you'd pen a song every now and then, but Dylan kind of came along as this force, and some other people as well. Dylan was the biggest one, and because Dylan influenced the Beatles, and then the Beatles influenced everybody. Yeah, no, I was, was definitely going to pinpoint the Beatles as a pretty major factor here. Yeah, exactly. But generally in the 60s, these kind of quote-unquote auteur groups or auteur bands kind of came up and... Then there was this tradition that was born from the 60s and it kind of just stuck. And as it stuck around, there was this weight that it got. I don't think in like, if you go back to 1967, I don't think anybody's going to say, oh, the birds aren't a real rock band because a lot of their songs are Dylan covers, you know, like that's just not. Again, I'll say it. The birds aren't a real rock band. <laughs> just throwing hot takes around today. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta get in trouble on Twitter somehow. <laughs> but somewhere along the way, there's this undue baggage that's put on composing. And obviously, I love music, like a well-composed song. Like, look at my channel. Most of my stuff is lyrical analysis, which is yeah. songwriting. But I don't think it's everything in music. And especially in rock music, I think there's a ton of great rock music made by people that are interpreting or are just straight up covering. I am starting to worry that we're circling pretty close to the same ground we covered in our auteur theory video. Uh, yes. Not video, episode, whatever whatever these are, podcasts, that's it. To try and maybe veer away from that a little bit and refocus on sort of the question of composition specifically, I think, what do we mean? What are we actually looking for when we say musicians should compose? Like, what do we want from them through the act of composition? And I think... What my interpretation, what I tend to think most people are actually looking for there is expression. Yes. It's like self-expression, putting yourself in the music. And, and you know, that, that becomes much easier to do if you're taking more control of what the things are, right? Like, you know, if you look at, like, Nine Inch Nails' version of Hurt, like, yes. Trent Reznor had a lot of control to say exactly what he wanted to say. But if you look at Johnny Cash's version of Hurt, you can tell that he took that and found a way to turn it into his own message. And again, we're straying towards another video. Uh, God, why do I keep calling them videos? You know what these are. It's almost um, like we make videos or something. It's almost like talking about videos is 90% of my job. <laughs> That's not true. 90% of my job is titles and thumbnails. But if, yeah, if you look at, like, Cash is Hurt, like, there's a clear interpretation and expression there. And that is, I think, the thing that gets sort of subsumed and lost when we talk about composition as this end-all, be-all of good musicianship. I agree with that a lot where, I mean, I think he's kind of like the ultimate example against people that say, oh, like you need to 
right? Your songs is Frank Sinatra because he is an absolute yeah. force. But you could take it, you could say it really of especially crooners because mostly what crooners did was they mostly just sang. Like they didn't even kind of like arrange or things like some covers did. They mostly just sang, but you could say the same about like Billie Holiday, Bing Crosby, or any of these people like what they did was completely self-expression. Like you cannot listen to Frank Sinatra sing my way and tell me like that's he didn't do it his way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I think another aspect, I think that was a really good question you asked was with the what are we looking for when we put this value on composition? I think another key aspect is authenticity. Yeah. The idea that you are authentically making this music. And I think there's this kind of anti-corporate tilt to pop that's like, oh, well, it's music made in a factory with no soul. And I think that that is completely discrediting the work that not only the performers put in, but also the songwriters. There's a ton of self-expression by these songwriters who write these songs that other singers end up performing. Yeah, and... I mean, not to veer too far off the thing, but I also, like, there's a lot of examples of pop music that is deeply personal and authentic. Like, Oh, yeah. The example I've been using recently is Montero. Uh, something like Lemonade, too, is, like, a deeply personal story for Beyonce. Even to use one to discuss something that we actually mentioned last episode, I believe, Circus by Britney Spears. Britney Spears is not at all, like, she's not part of the kind of Beyonce, Taylor Swift, like writes with the team. She mostly like for the most part, with a few exceptions, doesn't have writing credits. But Circus is clearly, clearly a song that is reflective of Britney Spears life and the kind of the circus of paparazzi around her at all times. Like that is a song that is very expressive and very authentic to what this artist was going through at the time, even if it was written by a team of a dozen writers. On that dozen writers thing. It was three writers, by the way, not yeah, actually well, a dozen. Yeah. But there are like songs where like they have like 10 writing credits yeah. and you see this as a thing that like rock nerds will sort of drag out when they're like, you know, like, look at this amazing Queen song that only has one songwriter and look at yeah. this Beyonce song that has 10 songwriters and I've picked the least good lyric in the entire thing yeah, to oh, try and cherry one, pick my yeah. point. You've you've seen these. Yes. But, you know, a lot of the time, like, I, we, and we've talked about this too before. God, this, this is the flashback episode of Ghost yeah, Notes. I'm this sorry. Is, this <laughs> is the clip show. It's our clip show. <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of times that's not necessarily a change in how the music is made so much as it's a change in what we're counting as a songwriter. Again, if you go back and look at Eleanor Rigby, there's no doubt in my mind that George Martin helped write that song. Yes. But he's not credited. And so you look at it and it's like, oh, this is like some, one of these great songwriting duos made this amazing piece of music. And it's like, nope, this was at least a trio. Like, you yeah. cannot deny George Martin's involvement in that song or a lot of Beatles songs, but he's almost never credited as a song. I, I don't know if he's ever credited as a songwriter. I haven't looked through every Beatles song. But you have this thing where nowadays you're seeing more credit to people who are doing those other aspects that are important parts of the work and important parts of the experience and making the music what it is, but weren't traditionally viewed as part of the quote-unquote songwriting team. And that's part of why these rosters are expanding. It's just, 
again, it's not like if you have 10 songwriters, each of them wrote 10% of the song. It's just, it was a collaborative effort and we're giving more credit to the collaborators. So then I think one of the questions worth exploring is, is there any intrinsic value in having written a song? I'm not going to say that makes things objectively better than the other because anyone listening to this by now should know that Corey and I both believe all music is equally bad. Every single song you like is bad and every single song you don't like is... Also bad. This is probably good. Let's say, <laughs> let's say it's all the music you don't personally like is good. That is the official stance I'm taking. Uh, quote me on that. But is there a value to be gained? Because I think this is something that, going back to the video that inspired this, I think Dr. Dunphy made a very compelling case that there is value to be gained within the classical world by putting more weight onto composition. And if you want to hear that argument, again, go watch this video. It's really good. But has there been value in the past? Is there value now in having this kind of baggage attached to composition in the rock world? So I think the thing that I would most sort of extract from Dr. Dunphy's argument here is the idea of learning to effectively, metaphorically speak the language, right? Like, we're not going to get into whether music is a language. We're certainly not going to get into whether it's a universal one. That's another episode. We haven't even done that one yet. This is like a future clip show. If we accept the metaphor of music as kind of a language, then I think there is value in knowing how to craft your own sentences, Right? Like, just go all in on the example she used because I think it's a good one. Like, imagine if you're learning French, and the way you learn French is they give you a book by Voltaire and they ask you to memorize a paragraph from it and recite that paragraph. And then they just judge you on how well you've memorized it. Like, if you get all the words right, if you get all the vowels right, all of that. And that's your French lesson. And you never learn, for instance, to say, my name is whatever. Yeah. I have a name. I probably could have used it there. I didn't. But, you know, you you never learn to say, like, my name is Corey. Or you never learn to, like, ask people questions. You never learn to tell people about yourself. You only learn to tell people about whatever topic Voltaire was interested in. But, and in that case, like, I think there is value in, from there, in knowing how to compose. That doesn't necessarily mean that there is value in any individual work being composed by you. But, like, again, when we look at, like, the greatest cover songs that we talk about, like, people like Hendrix's Watchtower, Cash's Hurt, like, these are all people who have written songs, right? Like, Jimi Hendrix has plenty of songs that he wrote. So does Johnny Cash. So does Aretha Franklin. And so you have these these songs that are... I do think it's interesting, though. I mean, th- maybe this is a tangent, but I do think it's interesting that... Oh, no, not a tangent. Of those two that you mentioned... Both Aretha Franklin and Johnny Cash, most of their songs they did not write. Both of them did write songs, but both of them mostly performed songs written by other people. Yeah, and that's, I think, sort of an important distinction here is, again, that, like, if you look at being able to compose versus composing everything, I think that there is value in being able to compose. I think that having that skill set makes you much more familiar with the tools that are available to you as an interpreter, right? Like, yes, understanding how to shape a song to make it express the thing you want to express is a skill that you can then take and apply in your improvisations, in your interpretations, in your performances. But it's something that I think is pretty, I don't want to say best honed, but is pretty well honed in composition. 
And again, it's a slightly broad definition of composition to include things like arranging and production. But that, that's sort of like sitting down, thinking about exactly what you want the song to sound like and figuring out how to make it sound like that. That is a skill that is worth building as a musician. What a way of summing up what you're saying here be something like writing songs or learning to write songs can make you a better musician, but not knowing how to write songs doesn't make you a worse musician. Yeah, I think that's fair. I would also, I guess how I would summarize it is like learning how to write songs can make you a better musician for whatever definition of better. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, in true Ghost Notes fashion, we would be, what is learning? What is better? What is a musician? <laughs> Everyone listening to this can assume what I mean by better, hopefully. <laughs> but anyway, learning to write songs makes you a better musician, but writing a song yourself doesn't make it a better song, I think is how I would sort of summarize what I'm trying to say. I think that makes a lot of sense. I agree that there's no real point, especially in kind of like comparing a song written by the performer to one that's not. I don't think there's yeah. any value in that. There is value in saying, oh, this person wrote this song. If you're doing what I do and kind of like trying to give socio-historical context, it's very important to know if someone wrote the song like yeah. on their own or not. Because in terms of lyrical analysis, knowing this stuff is helpful. And I think that that's another reason why people are attached to this because it's an easier narrative to say, you know, Kurt Cobain was depressed, so he wrote Nirvana's entire discography. <laughs> That's an easier narrative yeah. than like what I was talking about with Britney Spears and Circus earlier, where it's like Britney Spears, her life was a circus, so she went and picked out these songs or had these songs written for her. But I, I think there's really not much difference there. I think both of them are artists seeking out ways to express their authentic selves. It's just one of them, the way that the path they use to seek that out is crying over an acoustic guitar. And the other one, <laughs> the path is finding a multi-million dollar team of songwriters. The end product, I don't think there's more or less value from one or the other. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that there's significantly more value in Circus. It's no, I, that is not a stance I should probably be taking because I do genuinely like Nirvana. But like, I mean, I do just want to tweet out that you said that and see what things go. <laughs> Britney Spears Circus is better than Heart Shaped Box. Yeah. There, hot take number three. But yeah, I think if you look at songs like Circus, again, I, I would agree there's a lot of craft that goes into finding works that express what you want to express. And then again, it comes back to interpretation, right? Like if, say, Kurt Cobain had done Circus... I would have loved it. It would have been a very different song, right? But, and honestly, I mean, you could actually... Oh, God. Now there's an idea brewing in my head comparing how Nirvana and Britney Spears both dealt with the pressure of being one of the biggest musicians of their day and the paparazzi <laughs> pressures. Yeah, no, add Pink Floyd in there. You got a video essay. There's also skill in finding people you trust, right? Like finding people you can go to to be like, hey, this is what I want to say. Help me say it. And I, that's, I mean, fundamentally, that's what a band is, right? Like yes. that's You go to your drummer and be like, hi, I would like you to play drums on this in a way that expresses whatever my idea is. And your drummer will be like, got it. I know how to do that because I, unlike you, know how to play drums. And I, I don't know. If you're listening to this and you know how to play drums, I'm... Sorry for sort of insinuating you didn't. <laughs> to go back to like the Roger Daltrey, Pete Townsend thing, 
is Roger Daltrey had a lot of trust in Townsend, right? To like write songs that were good for him. And like, he may not have been like going to him and be like, hey, say this, but you know, there's still. It's such an interesting relationship of trust as well, because Pete Townsend also had a lot of trust in Daltrey to sing his words. Yeah, to, to bring these stories to life. And Daltrey was trusting him to give him stories he could bring to life. And I know that he at one point certainly kind of abused that for a joke. The song, Who Are You?, is was basically apparently, I believe, a bet between Townsend and Keith Moon to see how many times he could get Roger Daltrey to say the uh, name of the band in a song, and it was just screwing around. And that sort of thing is it's fine because like they're friends, they trust each other, they're having fun. But again, like that sort of thing that requires a lot of trust. I keep repeating that, but you know what I mean. I think another thing with kind of the like pop kind of song machine thing is something that also doesn't get as much credit is the difficulty of song picking because for so for those of you who don't know the way that this machine works this is a very like high level this is not yeah. there's a lot of norms and like rules and stuff like that but generally there are these people sometimes artists will commission a song or the producers will commission a song or something but a lot of the time there's also these people just writing songs and then the artists will kind of get sent a bunch of songs and pick which ones. And that's why you'll hear things like... Like, oh, this song was originally written for this person, but it actually, then Beyonce did it because Avril Lavigne didn't want it or whatever. Exactly. Or like Shape of You. That's one that I know for sure. Ed Sheeran had written it at a songwriting camp, kind of with, I say camp like it's a summer camp, like a songwriter's retreat. He had written it with Rihanna in mind, which is why it kind of has that like Caribbean beat influence. But then he he ended up doing it himself. But yeah, so I think that there's also a level of kind of skill, talent, and auteurship even needed for a pop artist to be able to know which songs will cultivate their image. That's something where, like, to go back to Frank Sinatra, in my video on In the Wee Small Hours, I talk a lot about this, how Frank Sinatra had this great American songbook and he picked the specific songs to sing to create this kind of concept album that was this whole mood of just like sorrow and regret and all of these things. He did that by curating and picking the right songs. And while I don't think I would call song picking composition, I think it is a skill that is just as difficult as composition and doesn't get nearly enough credit. Which I think comes back to sort of what we were talking about earlier, which is that you can have whatever definition you want of composition, but I think the thing that I would like, and I think Noah would like as well, is sort of removing some of the prestige from that, not necessarily saying, like, this is not a relevant thing, yes, but saying, like, this is not the only relevant thing. And this is, again, something that different people are good at than the other parts of music, and that's just... That's how skills work, right? Like that's just that's just how being good or bad at things is. And I think there's an aspect of this that I would feel wrong if we didn't discuss this because I think a big aspect of this composition bias plays very much into unconscious or maybe conscious sexism. Yeah. Where pop music tends to be uh, and it's definitely like not exclusively this, but a lot of pop music is fronted pop acts are women. They are female performers. And rather than... There's that, and there's also 
the target audience is primarily teenage girls. Yes, correct as well. If you're listening to this and you, like, say, oh, I hate pop music and stuff like that, like, I'm not trying to say you're a bad person, but I'm saying inspect your biases, and also I'm saying have better opinions. Listen to circus, yeah. Yeah, yeah, have opinions like Corey and I, where our opinions (laughs) are so nebulous that you can't pin anything down, and everything is a 10-minute conversation of definitions. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but, I mean... What is a definition? (laughs) So with all those caveats, I think that there are a lot of people and historically, especially like rock is a very kind of like bravado. It's a genre rich with toxic masculinity and scenes rich with it. And a lot of the I think a lot of the kind of like pressure and focus on composition is a way of knocking down these female performers as not as talented as male singer-songwriters, even though they are just as talented, often more, it's just that they have a different set of talents that are still music and still mean being a musician. It's just a different facet of being a musician. I wouldn't disagree with that at all, uh, Although, but I do want to sort of emphasize that this, for my, again, the reason I sort of brought up audiences is that, like, if you look at pop musicians there are plenty of male artists who get similar levels of hate, right? Like the Justin Bieber is a classic example, or the Jonas Brothers. Yes. And the thing that I think really differentiates it for me is like, again, if you look at who these, who this music is for, who the target audience is, and again, this is not to say that these are the only people who like any given genre, right? Like I'm not saying only 15-year-old girls like pop. I like a lot of pop. And last I checked, I was neither 15 years old or a girl. But like, if you look at like the target demos, like you see that, For the most part, popular music tends to target teenage girls. Rock and metal and these sorts of things tend to target teenage to young adult men and boys. And so part of it to me also with sort of the emphasis on songwriting is a way of saying that I have better taste, right? That you, for liking Justin Bieber or for liking, I was going to say Beyonce, but again, she has a lot of songwriting credits, but like Britney Spears or someone like that, you for enjoying those are a worse and less interesting musical consumer because your work doesn't have the aesthetics and doesn't have the components that I value in my music. And that, again, I think is very deeply rooted in a lot of toxic masculinity and sexism because, again, the demographics of these genres of music are pretty noticeably gendered. So all of this is to say maybe don't gatekeep, you know? Can we just yeah? Can we just say don't gatekeep songwriting because you're probably playing into a wider uh, and very harmful thing. And I think another thing too is that it's opening up more now, and you're getting to see a, a lot more kind of cool, interesting, diverse musicians because of it. But you know, when you say to a young music fan, "What you listen to isn't real music," you're discouraging them from making music themselves. You're saying that their kind of like, their taste, the thing that will shape what the art that they make, because we are all shaped by our influences, you're saying that's less valid and that's bad. And in doing so, you're turning these people off. And maybe some of these people, I mean, I know, I'm sure there's a lot of people that are songwriters that write their own stuff that were influenced by pop artists that didn't write their own stuff. I mean, it's it's all over the place. There's a ton of pop in rock now, and yeah. pop rock is is huge. Almost definitionally. Like, again, if you go back to early rock, there was mostly people weren't writing their own stuff, and then at some point they started. And yes. 
There's an influence chain there. There's always one. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, this is, I think this is a topic that really, really pisses me off a lot. Just because I really like rock music, but I don't feel this need to justify that rock is superior in this way or that. And in some ways that it, sometimes it almost feels like there's like, especially these days, it almost feels like there's like an insecurity because like rock doesn't really chart anymore. And like, if you're a rock person that says they don't write their own songs, how do you feel when someone says like, oh, well, they couldn't even chart you're like, well, I don't care. They're not trying to chart, you know? And, and yeah, so, that's not the point. Yeah, exactly. So if you're saying, oh, Britney Spears didn't write her own songs, we're coming in hard on the Britney Spears stuff here. We are yeah, Britney that's Spears because Britney is here. great. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Just making up lost time for not, like, recognizing how great Britney Spears was earlier yes. in my life. And, and we're just showing our age because Britney Spears was a cultural touchstone when we were young. Oh, like such a touchstone. Yeah. <laughs> she was everywhere. If you're like younger than us, you this may not seem like, but like think of like Taylor Swift or something like that. Yeah. It's probably similar. I don't, not exactly the same, but you know, similar. Yeah. I think the thing is just that, Again, clip show theme. Like I've, yeah, we've we've talked about this before. Where you're not going to get very far trying to appreciate the practices of one musical tradition by trying to jam it into the frameworks of another. You're not going to enjoy yeah. classical music if you go into it listening for banging choruses. It's just it's just well, not going to happen. Depends how you define chorus. Yeah, yeah. I mean that is true. The <laughs> I think the other thing, the flip side of that, I would also say is that like you can get a much deeper appreciation of the genres you care about by understanding what other genres do too, right? And so I think sort of, even if all you want to do is appreciate singer-songwriter rock music, which there's a lot more out there, like just expand your horizons. But even if that's all you want to do, I think you can still benefit from moving past the idea that being a composer, composing your own songs is the end-all be-all of musical quality and trying to understand what other genres are looking for, because you can probably find a lot of that in the music you're listening to as well, if you're looking for it. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. And I think I think an example of that is more rock artists than you know have worked with songwriting teams. Aerosmith yeah. worked with songwriting teams, worked with songwriting teams a fair bit. I mean, like like we said before, the entire... Yeah, I mean, do you have any idea how many people's skill it took to write Walk This Way? <laughs> So I guess I'm just dunking on Walk This Way now. That's my yeah, new thing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's fair. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> There's more dunkable Aerosmith songs. Yeah, but none of them were songs I had to perform in college. So. <laughs> <laughs> like so many of these things, and like so many of these episodes of Ghost Notes, just, it's exhausting. Just let people listen to music. yeah. Yeah, I think that could definitely be this show's tagline. It's just like, just just like music. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Or hate all music equally. I'm fine yeah. with that too. If you want to say every piece of music ever made is terrible, I, I would love to hear your takes. Yeah, no, go, go ahead. Go nuts. Um, and then to bring it back to the classical thing, I think actually what we were talking about with like opening yourself up to the practices of other musical traditions, I think that's actually a great link to the video that discussed this and the classical thing, which is that in the classical lens, yeah, maybe a genre that 
doesn't put any weight at all on composition, or maybe not any weight at all, but puts not nearly enough well, weight yeah, on composition. Very little weight. Yeah. yeah. Culturally, extremely little weight. Exactly. Like, maybe it could benefit by opening up to the rock tradition. And if you're going to say, oh, classical should open up to the rock tradition, maybe you should say, oh, hey, maybe rock can open up to other traditions like classical, like pop, yeah. you know? There's dialogue. Yeah, we already have had. classic rock, so. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're just hitting it out of the park with the zingers today. <laughs> the, the audience's eyes are going to be rolled all the way out of their heads by the time this, this episode's over. But no, I, I, I would agree that again, I think there's a lot that you know rock can learn, like from the idea of sort of like classical's desire to sustain a work, if that makes sense. I think that yeah, you know, rock tends to because and partly because because of the medium. If you look at like the way that classical music does that, it's through repeated performance, whereas the way rock does it is through this sort of crystallized recording. And so and I think that, you know, if, if you look at like cover bands, I think cover bands are a great example of sort of applying that sort of performative sustaining to rock music as a way of taking this and being like, this is this song done in the way you know, but sort of with, with someone else's like fingers on it, you know? So what you're telling me is that the rock equivalent of Leonard Bernstein is a cover band you see at a bar with no cover cost, right? That's what we're getting at? <laughs> to an extent? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's actually a really cogent point about cover bands being something that, and and again, even there, when I talk about that, like cover bands are something that are kind of frowned upon, you know? Like they're, yeah. they're kind of not taken seriously in the rock community, even though... What they are doing, like you said, is they are celebrating the works of some of the greatest composers in this genre, and also Aerosmith. Yeah, and they're giving you a chance to sort of experience these live in a way that you can't necessarily with the original performers anymore. Or if you can, it might be extremely expensive and not particularly convenient in terms of location if they're still touring. But, like, you know, I can still go hear a Led Zeppelin song performed, and it's, you know, it's not going to be you know, Jimmy Page playing it, but like... I've actually seen John Bonham's son, the Jason Bonham Experience. He has a yeah. Zeppelin cover band. It was fantastic. It was a really fun show. Tangentially related, but like one of my teachers back in college was in ACDC cover band, and going to their shows was so much more fun than just listening to an ACDC record because so much of that sort of thing is live. And sustaining that live experience is an important part of understanding the rock tradition in a way that you can't get from, even from a live recording. Like, it's yeah. not the same as being in the room. And, like, we can talk about, like, I definitely want to do, like, a full episode on, like, live music later, like, once that's a thing again. But, like, I, just for now, I, I think that that's just comparing it to, again, the classical tradition and how they approach things, like, that is such an integral part of understanding classical music is like going to the symphony and being there in that space. And I think that that can get lost when we sort of abstract things away to talking about just the songwriter as opposed to the interpreter or the performer. I think that's a really good point. I'm also just going to quickly, 
before we leave too far from cover bands, shout out that no, one of ahead. the best shows that I've ever seen in my life was a all-female cover band of Nirvana called Hervana playing in a <laughs> uh, a pinball bar. It was the exact experience that I think Nirvana would have been proud of. <laughs> Again, I, I would sort of come back, I guess sort of the takeaway that I'm looking for, if I could sort of take everything that I've said and try and distill it into a sentence that's hopefully less long than the one that I've been saying introducing it, which we'll see. I mean, that sentence was basically as long as they can get, so. It was tough. Writing songs is a good way to understand the vocabulary of the songs that you make, but it is not the same thing as self-expression or authenticity. Those can be accomplished through other means. Yeah, I think that's yeah. fantastic. I think that's a that's a great place to leave it. I will not restate your thoughts, but worse, like I usually do. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, uh, half the time I restate your thoughts, but worse. So. That's the Ghost Notes way. <laughs> Just over and over, getting worse to constant descent. Yeah, so thank you all so much for listening to this episode. I hope we gave you something to chew on. And if we didn't, you know, I hope you enjoyed the Ghost Notes clip show. This is what every episode yeah. is going to look like from here on out. So It's actually just going to be this recording over and over again with different titles. We've said all there is to say. We've solved music. Yeah. We, we're done. We've, we've covered it. We've handled music. Next, architecture. Do we want to start talking about architecture? Yeah, yeah. I've got hot takes on brutalism. Don't you worry. Yeah, yeah. No, buildings are good. That's that's my stance. <laughs> Buildings are bad. That's my stance. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, drama drives clicks. Yeah. Chances are you know you know where to see us. And please check out Melissa Dunphy's video. Again, it's called All Musicians Should Compose, a rant about the way we are taught classical music. Hopefully anyone listening to this knows this, but just like as someone who is, as we're currently referring you to a video from someone who is not like the biggest creator in the world or anything, be nice. Like, even if you disagree with yeah. her arguments, even if you don't think her cases, be, be nice, be respectful. And just like, if you're going to represent us by dropping into her comment section and saying that we sent you and here's your thoughts. Well, actually the comments on this video are turned off because of. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> that is a good point. Because right. of classical. But if you're gonna yeah. if you're gonna mention it to her on that. Twitter, you know, be nice. Yeah. Be chill. Again, I hope I don't have to say that, but this is the internet. We are content creators and influencers. And so I really feel the need to directly ask people to be chill because yeah. they often are not. So anyway, yeah, that's my thing. That that's me. Yeah, you know where to find us. We don't need to tell yeah. you. Bye. Yeah, or just bye. <laughs>